Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello, everyone. Super glad to have you here again. Today, we have the honor and the pleasure of welcoming Bastien Lachny on our, on our podcast. Hello, Bastien. Hey, Sam. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Very well. Thank you for inviting me. Very happy to, uh, to participate to this uh, great podcast and I uh, would have loved to do it face to face. So, uh, you know, you'll have to invite me again next year. That works for us. Very happy to welcome you once you're, we can travel again. Um, but yeah, glad to have you for this international episode of the uh, of the corner. Um, and so, uh, so, so yeah, just to go a bit, you know, in the past, we we learned to know each other back in your in your Delta Trade days. But would love for everyone to to have a bit of an understanding of your personal and professional background so far in your career for people don't, who don't know you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Bastien Lachny. I've been. Uh... I've been working in the sport industry for uh, almost 16 years now. Uh, I've started my career at Eurosport. I was a product manager there, uh, you know, working on websites and applications um, and, you know, stayed four years there, which was a, a great start and introduction to, uh, to this industry. Uh, and then I left for, for Italy to work for uh, Delta Trey, uh, which is for those that are not familiar with uh, Delta Trey, an Italian group uh, known with, now with um, U.S. ownership that is providing, uh, you know, I'm going to try to, to give a, a clear explanation because it's quite a complex environment, but they're providing product and services to sports right holders and right owners. So the clubs, the leagues, the federation, the, the broadcasters. Um, and I've started there uh, in Italy, uh, in their headquarter in Turin, working on product development and launching uh, 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 noticeably uh, a product called Diva, a video player with synchronized sport data that, that they're still using and they kept the name. So I'm quite proud of that. Um, and then I, um, I wanted to switch to sales, uh, you know, after uh, eight years on, on, on product development. And I had the opportunity to go back home in Paris and, and open the, the Delta Tray office uh, in France and uh, managing, to keep it simple, let's say, Western Europe sales uh, for, for Delta Tray for another four years. And then finally, four years ago, I, uh, I joined the EME office of the NBS or here in London um, in the media right distribution team. Uh, and in, in layman's term, that means I'm selling and managing the, the media rights of the NBA in the region. So working both with traditional broadcaster streaming platforms and also, uh, you know, working on our direct to consumer product, the, uh, the NBA League Pass. Well, so so you actually worked on the product side of things for a broadcaster, I, then on the sales side of things for a uh, for you know for a digital partner, and then at the end of the journey, now you're selling rights within an organization. That's a lot of different tasks in a lot of different types of organizations. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's basically I'm only missing the I would say in the in in the main part of the sports ecosystem. I've never worked for a sponsor. I guess that will be the missing part. Uh, I'm not trying to send a, a message to recruit. <laughs> Nike, uh, Puma, 
<laughs> no, no, no. Um, but but no, it's it's obviously interesting to have the different angles. Yeah, yeah. And so and and I think you personally, and I can see the basketball hoop in the background. NBA was like the grail for you, right? You're a big basketball fan to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I I I am, uh, and I quickly realized as a kid that I wouldn't make it to the NBA as a player for uh, obvious lack of uh, of talent and, and physical attributes. So uh, you know, that was the next best thing for me uh, to uh, to work at the NBA. And uh, the funny thing is that I've uh, when I was starting at Eurosports, I uh, I was invited. I did a small deal with the NBA at the time, and I was invited to a game in Paris. Uh, one of the Paris game, but, uh, you know, a preseason game. I think it was Spurs, Maccabi Tel Aviv. And um, I was invited to the party afterwards. Uh, and I was, you know, incredibly, I mean, it was like being in Disneyland for me. And I met David Stern there and I went to him and I told him, one day I'll work for you. And unfortunately, I, I, I you know, he retired, uh, you know, I think a year and a half before I joined the NBA, but uh, it, it was What I'm trying to say is that you know it was always in the in the back of, of my mind and, and and joining this organization, especially as I was uh, headhunted, so I, I did not even apply for the job. Was uh, yeah, it was like a dream come true. And 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 you know when you start at the NBA, for some people it doesn't make a difference because they're not fans. But you know when you arrive on the first day, you have a jersey with your name on the back. All that sort of little thing that you know were just you know great for me. But then you know obviously you have to you have to deliver and be a pro and and put the fan in the in the back seat. But it's a it's a great environment and and yes, it was kind of a dream come true. Yeah, and then four years later, it's part of your day to day. But I, I I can very well relate to the first day being quite an amazing souvenir for you. Um, And so just to, to understand and before we deep dive on exactly the operations of the NBA and how the European office operates and how it's, you know, like how the whole structure works, what is your exact role over there? And, you know, what is the beginning and the end of your task? Um, so in a nutshell, I'm, I'm selling the NBA major rights in the Europe and Middle East region and, and the NBA um, does not sell rights via tenders like UEFA or, or FIFA or, you know, or any um, major football league will typically do. Uh, we have direct discussions with all the major players of the market and that's how we attribute our rights. And there's a team of five sales and three account manager and we're, you know, splitting all the different markets and the different aspects of the business. Um, when I joined, I was focusing only on digital, uh, but then I got a larger role. I got, you know, lucky enough to, to be, uh, you know, to be promoted. And, uh, and now I'm managing just all sort of rights, uh, you know, whether it's digital or, or, or TV rights. Interesting. And just to understand, so that means that there's more your team outbounding the different right holders and broadcasters in the different regions, or when you're in the position like the one at the NBA, it's actually those broadcasters that to the original reach outs how does it how, like what's the, so the that's a, the, that's a very that's a very good question uh i i think that my my life and my work my job is is probably very different to those of um rights right owners that uh that will be a little bit less premium we we do sell rights but yes there is a a, a large part of uh, of reaching out from the broadcasters So, so, you know, because, because the brand is so valuable, it, it clearly makes our life easier. And it's not like I have to, uh, 
to do uh, you know call calls to uh, to broadcaster to uh, to pitch why they should need our rights. Um, but also you know it's a small market, uh, so we we it's easy to identify who are the major player, but uh, but but very often we we, we do uh, you know receive some interest proactively from the broadcasters. Yes. Yeah, so it's actually an interesting one because it's more about strategy and exposition. I'm assuming, obviously, there's the monetary component, but and I guess the broadcasters' offers are often related on what they understand of the overall value that they can create around the rights that you're selling to them. But I'm assuming it's a it's a more fun job than the one of chasing or very simply running tenders. Uh, yes, and there's a big strategic aspect indeed, uh, and um, there's a lot of variety also in the in the discussion we have and in the d dynamics of of each single market. I mean, we manage more than 40 partners in the region. We cover 47 countries, uh, 36 languages, so we keep ourselves busy. And you're you're not going to sell the rights the same way on you know, let's say in a, in a territory like the UK. Uh, and a territory where you know a territory like the UK that is not a you know basketball market per se, but where still there's a big affinity with the brand from more a lifestyle and fashion perspective. And in um, the the in the Balkans, let's say where you know basketball is a religion, uh, and it's all about uh, the game itself, and and they have like 15 local players, uh, so that's that that's different dynamics clearly. And then, you know, in any media right discussion that's not specific to the NBA, uh, if there's competition or not on the market, it's going to dictate your strategy as well for obvious reasons. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so in general, so the headquarters of the, uh, the NBA offices are based out of London. And so what do you operate from London? What is done centrally for the U.S. and what is handled at the European level by the London office in general? Um, you mean in term of basically, are you asking how independent we are from the U.S.? Is that the question? That, that, that was the first step to that question. No, I mean, we, we have a very high level of autonomy on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but, you know, we have a very strong brand, which means that we are extremely careful about, you know, how we're commercializing this brand, which means that we have processes in place and regular checkpoints with the U.S. so that ultimately, you know, they have to give the green light when it comes to the business deal. Like, I'm, I cannot sign a deal without going to the U.S. And, and making a case. But they obviously understand that we have the knowledge of the market and that, you know, it, it, people is key. People are key in, in business discussion in general. Uh, so having the, the local knowledge of the market, having the personal knowledge of the people you're dealing with, Is, is very important and they trust us on that. So I don't feel like it's that centralized, at least from my perspective. Yeah, you have the autonomy because obviously the NBA are doing putting together European office with high level people that have a better knowledge ultimately. And so as long as you defend the case in the proper manner, they just follow your, they, I, I'm assuming they follow your recommendations and then add on top of that additional layers of value that they see from a centralized standpoint. Yeah, no, and, and you know they can challenge us, uh, and they can sometimes bring a, a more global picture. Like you know, there might be some strategical aspect of a discussion 
because of discussion happening in the US that we might miss from the region. So then they will share this information and we'll just collaborate to ultimately reach the, the best goal uh, uh, for the NBA as a whole in, in, in every given territory. Um, and so was your other, I'm sorry, your, your other, the other part of the question was about like the reasoning with having a, an office in, in London? Yeah, just in, in general, like how big is the office in London and what's the global mindset of the NBA around this, the, the, the size of the office in London? Sure. So um, I think that first, let's start with uh, maybe a, a little bit of history on, uh, on, uh, on, on the office. Uh, uh, the first thing to know, I, I don't know if you, you probably know, Sam, but the, 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 the office was in Paris initially. Um, I, I think... If I'm not wrong, I didn't double check that, but I think that it was the first international office of the NBA in Paris uh, in the late 90s. Um, and it was really just, uh, you know, uh, 10, 12 people uh, that, that, that were there. So it was, uh, um, it was not the same as today where we are almost 70 people, uh, you know, 60 people in, uh, in, um, in London and actually 10 in a smaller office in, in Madrid. Um, and we moved to, to London, I think, 15 years ago. Um, and now we have all the function represented, uh, you know, media distribution, licensing, fan engagement, events, basketball operation, and all the more classical, you know, support function like HR, finance. Um, and I think that our previous commissioner, David Stern, that, that, that I know you, you knew, um, uh, really had a vision that there was, and, and God, he was right, uh, that there was great potential for development internationally for the NBA. Um, and, and now today we have, we have 12 offices across the world. So this is something we're, we're replicating everywhere. Uh, and why Europe? I think it's, you know, Europe is important to the NBA at, at many levels. Uh, but I think the most important two things probably are um, what I will call, you know, talents, grassroots, uh, you know, like the players themselves and the game itself. And, and then there's a business aspect. And, and I think you need to have resources in the region to nurture both of these aspects. So I, as you can imagine, I won't share the revenue numbers, uh, but we have very healthy and, and, and you know, and, and growing business in the region. Um, and about the game itself, at the start of the season, just for reference, we had uh, more than 60 European players in the league, which is by far the biggest regional contingent outside of American players. And we had, you know, six European players that were all stars, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, 10 European players that was selected at the last draft. So these are numbers that, you know, speaks for themselves in terms of the importance of the region from yeah. even just for like a game perspective. And it's a, it's a virtuous circle uh, in the sense that, you know, the more player are going to have, the more local interest is going to generate, the more business and the more we're going to invest in the region and, and so on. Yeah. And it's true that when you think about it, and we, for us, it's normal that the, the NBA and basketball in general has such a strong space in the ecosystem just because we feel like it's been there forever for the people of our generation but when you look at what the nba was in the 1960s compared to the other american sports and how the other american sports are having a very tough time developing in europe that's where you realize the genius behind somebody like david stern and how he created that brand and made it international and had basketball grow just as a general sport 
And actually, I didn't know that their first office was in Paris before you said it. But now that you tell me about it, everything connected because they had that match in the 1990s. I think it was 1994, but I'm, it's the McDonald's, the, the McDonald's Open. Sorry? The McDonald's Open was the... Exactly, was the exactly, with Paris Basket Racing in it. And I remember that, and there was Disneyland, and, and you know, like, in, in that period, like, from a marketing standpoint, that was huge. Like, when you take a look at it and what has been done since, that's just one of many events, but that was huge back then in terms of the vision that David Stern brought to the, brought to the industry, right? Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he, he he changed the league forever, and everybody that works at the league knows that. Uh, in the, you were talking about the '60s. I mean, I'm not going to elaborate on that, but let's say that in the '60s, the NBA Finals were on replay. They were not even on live television, uh, and we had huge issues with uh, um, like drugs, for instance. You know, exactly. There was a huge drug issue in in in, in the NBA. Uh, economically, it wasn't working that well. There was competition from the ABA, the other league. Uh, you know, a lot of things were, you know, it was not a fully functional league at the time. And and actually, I don't know if you're aware, but we're we're celebrating our uh, 75th birthday next season. Um, and uh, yeah, we're 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 in a good place now, I think. Yeah. And so beyond what you explained so far in terms of the European strategy, and obviously you have the yearly games that used to happen in London that are now happening in Paris, not last year for the, the circumstances that everybody know, but, uh, but what's, what's the digital importance in that whole European development? Like where, what are the main, most important topics that you're covering with the digital and the rights in general? Um, to develop the sport, the visibility of the sport in the region? Like, what's the big strategy around that content? Um, so, from a, from a first, I think it's it's important to mention that um, there's a, obviously a challenge that we face uh, and that our fans face in Europe is that is the timing of the game. Uh, yeah. you know, 95 I'm surprised, actually, when I see the European leagues, how they adapt to the Chinese market and the different markets by moving around the different times of the games it feels like the u.s aren't doing the nba isn't doing that as extensively which is a bit of a shame from a european perspective well trust me it's a lot better than what it was five ten years ago uh we you know 95 of the game are, are are in the middle of the night but we we've we now have like last season there were 48 regular season game uh that were in prime time uh european time so we have this initiative called the NBA Sundays and the NBA Saturdays. And we have, a, you know, so pretty much a game every Saturday and a game every Sunday, uh, you know, sponsored by our friends from, from NBA 2K, uh, you know, that, that are available to, um, to, our, to our fans at, at, you know, decent times um, in, uh, in, um, in, in, in Europe. But that's, you know, that, that's, ob that's obviously a, a, a challenge. Um, but I would say that um, that's the reason why digital is so important for us, clearly. Uh, and that's the reason why we have to approach the European um, fans uh, differently, because the consumption of the, of the content is, is just not going to be the same. Uh, and which is why also the, the NBA League Pass is an important part of our, of our, of our strategy. Um, and, and which is why also uh, everything that we publish on on social is a very um, is a very very important part of our strategy. 
Yeah. And beyond, so actually to get back to the NBA League Pass topic, <coughs> that's obviously a platform that you put a lot of effort into. And it's also from just from a rights perspective, very important for everybody to be able to understand is that you sell the rights to individual broadcasters in certain territories that include digital, but you still have the NBA League Pass on this side with a whole lot of additional feature set that can be sold in every European territory. So can you tell us a bit more about that strategy? Um, I think it's it's worth mentioning that, you know, we've launched the NBA League Pass um, in 2007, I think, uh, in Europe. So almost 15 years ago. And we were really innovators uh, from this perspective. And, 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 and the groundwork that was done at the time, I was, I was, you know, not part of the NBA at the time, but it's certainly helping us today um, to, uh, you know, to, to, to have our, our broadcast partner accepting our, our direct consumer offer. Um, and, and cause, cause I know for a fact that, um, some of our colleagues, uh, that have launched, you know, recently some services, you know, a good example, I think is formula one have faced, have faced, you know, serious, uh, hurdles, uh, in their discussion with, uh, with, uh, with broadcast partner. Um, yeah, but 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 I think that we're in a different spot, uh, and we 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 absolutely believe that uh, you know both you know the content that is managed by our broadcast partner and the league pass can coexist, um, because the positioning is very different, uh, because we have a thousand and three hundred games per season, including the playoff and the finals, and that the average partner usually broadcasts between a hundred and two hundred games per year. Uh, so he has the greatest game usually, uh, and he's localizing them, and he's offer is he's offering them to a sport fan that buys a multi-sport offer at usually a very competitive price, right? Right. While on the other end, the league pass is the only destination where all the games are available, so it's more for the hardcore NBA fan that wants more flexibility to watch all the games of a single team or just several games every night or every morning. Um, and, and the pricing is more premium uh, and there's limited localization of the content. So if there's cannibalization, I would say that the only risk of cannibalization is the broadcaster cannibalizing, cannibalizing League Pass, not the other way around. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, there are many European markets where we actually work with the broadcaster to promote League Pass uh, by offering exclusive discount to their subscribers, for instance, or you know additional free trials, which make it even less likely that you know you're going to have any sort of cannibalization. So the NBA League Pass is a very important part of our strategy. It's here to stay, but we do believe it's part of the ecosystem and it can coexist with um, with um, with uh, what the broadcaster is offering because it's just a very different proposition. Yeah. And just in general, from what I know, at least the broadcasters are literally playing the content in a digital format. So not doing a lot of work, additional work on top of the content that you're delivering to them digitally. But on the NBA League Pass, you have all sorts of functionalities and also micro payments and, you know, like really pushing the limits of what can be done in digital. What's an initiative you're proud of that's available in the NBA League Pass and that you believe created a lot of value for the for, for the core fans that are taking the NBA League Pass? So, I mean, there's a couple of things, uh, but, you know, it's we, we obviously, uh, from, from a packaging perspective, we're trying to, uh, to offer, uh, you know, 
a multitude of 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 you know of entry points you know it's it's the whole you know the good old funnel uh theory you know you want the maximum of people to enter the funnel even if it's for a small transaction so which is why we you know we've we've put together these more we call them transactional packages uh which is like you know a, you can buy 10 minutes of access to the product you can buy uh just one quarter uh, of uh, of a single game with a dynamic pricing, which is you know pretty innov- innovative, but from a product perspective, uh, you know as you know a, a user of the league pass and as a basketball fan, I think that the the experience uh, in terms of like the ability to select the the commentary that you want. So in a in a typical game, you can pick if you want the the national broadcast uh, uh, comment commentary. You can choose the home. Or the away commentary, uh, we have you know additional set of you know in language commentary or you know um, you know betting oriented even are, are coming on on some territories. So there's a you know really a, a large variety of um, of uh, of uh, personalization that you can do, and then the product itself and you know the the the, the additional data panel, uh, all the live stat of the player is just you know it's just a very advanced experience. Uh, uh, that 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 you have as an NBA fan. So you know, I was I was a, a you know a subscriber before I joined the NBA, uh, and 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 the product is getting better and better. Um, and actually, you know, in the coming years, uh, you know, it's you know we're going to even accelerate uh, when it comes to the league pass. And and you know, in, in the couple of in the next couple of years, uh, you'll see a, a full rebranding of the of the platform, and it's it's something we're very excited about. Yeah, that's definitely a very exciting point. And you were saying as a fan of the NBA, you were consuming the NBA League Pass. I've experienced for the first time, like Canal Plus using our live-like tools on their platform and being a consumer of the product that I was actually representing on the market. And I have to say, that's quite a, a very exciting moment in, a, in an individual career. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so taking another step back also just from the digital and more deep diving into, for example, uh, per territory strategy. France is a big territory for the NBA. Uh, if I'm not wrong, it is the biggest one. Uh, is the, is, is the most, um, is where there are the most NBA fans and one of the most dynamic markets for the NBA. How do you actually reinforce that dynamic, make sure that You keep creating that bridge so that there's more and more people interested, more and more consumers of the NBA, more and more players in the draft. Um, I know there are also big events like K54 that are, you know, like have taken a, a strong a strong place. How do you support those kind of initiatives? Like how how would you say you make the help with the success of a region like France when you're the NBA European office? I mean, so first of all, I think it's fair to say that France is indeed one of the most, you know, interested, engaged country, but that's not necessarily the biggest one. Um, is it not? Uh, which one is it? Uh, well, Spain. Spain is, uh, is is huge for us. And if you're looking at some of the criterias, uh, you know, Spain, it, it depends. You know, on some criterias, you'll be surprised. Yeah. Like UK is actually number one, um, which, which, which I know, which can be surprising. Uh, but, but, you know, yes, France and Spain, let's say, are the two biggest one, and then it's UK, Germany, Italy are, are not far behind. But to answer your question, there are obviously some synergies. Um, 
And, but but we don't we don't have a strategy where we're trying to have our hands on 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 you know on everything that is happening. There's a strong you know community uh, you know in the in the basketball and NBA fan ecosystem in France and and K54 is a good example of that where we're we're not necessarily involved or or, or, or very likely uh, just because but obviously there are some players coming over and stuff. Yes at, yes yes but there but that's not. That's not even something we're facilitating. Uh, you know, it's a Nike event, so you know that Nike. most of the athletes that are coming are actually Nike athletes. Uh, we're 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 happy to help if needed, but you know, whenever something is becoming an NBA official event, maybe you're not going to be able to do the same thing. So you know, K54 grew up without us, and and we're we're they're they're doing great for for the love of basketball in France. So we're really happy about it, and and if there are some synergies and, and opportunity to partner we uh we will do it but you know it, it can also be that they're doing their own thing and, and it works very well i mean it's a very good event events um but to to come back on what you were saying earlier we, we obviously not taking europe as a you know one single monolithic territory we have different strategy depending on the on the level of development the, the maturity the, the basketball affinity level of each market and and that was I was saying earlier. I mean, you're not going to have the same discussion in the UK, where it's more a culture thing, uh, and and they have like one NBA player, and I'm pretty sure that 99.99% of even the basketball fan in UK don't know who this player is. His name is Ojeda. Is it still Lou Deng? No, uh, no, yeah, it was, but he's re- he's been retired for like five years. Come on, Sam. Uh, OG, I don't know. He, you playing like cloth man on a team and I wouldn't know about it. it, it you know, fun, fun story. Luol Deng is, is actually still um, uh, paid by uh, an NBA team. Like his contract is still going on, but he's been out of the league for like three years. Um, but it, but was, you know, it was five it, it was five years ago, one minute ago. Now it's three years. And now you're going to tell me that was right before coronavirus. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you, you know, I was saying, you know, the, the, the opposites, um, example is like the Balkans, uh, you know, where it's basketball is the religion and you have like 15 players. So we, we wouldn't need a European office, uh, if, you know, if that, if that was that simple to tackle the, the, the European markets. Um, but, and, and even from a pure media perspective, you know, even if a sky or the zone are, are have a presence in more than just one territory, um, none of them has a large enough pan-European presence at this stage. And, and we have more than 40 different partners and that's just the media side of the business. So we're, we're trying to, uh, we, you know, we're, we're trying to, to, to work in coordination with uh, whatever, you know, basketball ecosystem exists in the territory. Um, but it's really a, a market by market uh, approach. And, you know, in France, we're working with some of the, of the main influencers. We're, we're obviously going to work with, uh, with our broadcast partner on some on some initiative, we're going to work with with with, with sponsors. But it's also great, I think, that there's a, a parallel world where we're not directly involved, and that is just you know helping to to bring the 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 you know the the, the love for basketball and the NBA in, in, in this country, and that's definitely happening in France. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And one last question on that exact you know the European office and the NBA. Um, one of the things, and it's kind of tuned down now, but I remember not so long ago, there was this discussion about the NBA having an international, international franchises. 
Yes. Where are we at with that conversation? So I think that as an NBA fan, I've been hearing that for 30 years. Seriously. <laughs> wow. Uh, that, that makes me old. Yeah. No, I am old. Uh, we are bringing the NBA to Europe and, and to, you know, other parts of the world on a regular basis with our, you know, global games program. And the Paris games last year was the first regular season ever to be played in France. Um, and, and, you know, even if, you know, the, the, the current crisis didn't allow us to be, to be back in Paris in, in January, we'll definitely be back in, in Europe, uh, in Paris or, or, and elsewhere, uh, soon. Um, now to have actual local NBA teams and, you know, this is just my, my personal opinion here. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what, uh, you, know, you will have to check the last Adam Silver. Every time Adam Silver is coming to a, a game in Europe, somebody asks the question. So uh, you can check what he what he answered last what time. He said last time. But but my personal view is that uh, you need a lot of different planets to align to make that happen. Uh, to have an NBA team, you need an arena that complies with you know the NBA standard. You need a market that makes sense from a fandom and a business perspective. You need to carefully evaluate the multiple impacts that it's going to have on the format of the competition, the schedule, and so many other things. And you need, and that's a very important point for us. You need to think about the player health. And that's an absolute, you know, that, that's a priority for us. I mean, we, we know that, yes, going from Paris to New York is not that much different than going from, from LA. LA. But, but, it, but it actually is. It actually is. There's, there's like more... Uh, you know, the, 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 you're going to have a, a, a seven hours, a six hours uh, time difference versus only a, a three or fours in, in, in LA. Um, so, you know, all these elements. And so last but not least, you can't forget that the average value of an NBA franchise today is above $2.2 billion. Um, and all this element, plus the fact that we have, you know, FIBA and EuroLeague are managing very successful competition in Europe already. We're friends with both. They're not necessarily friends with each other, but we're uh, uh, we you know we're, we're we have a good. They don't have a choice but to be friends with the NBA on their end. Sorry, on their end, they don't have a choice but to be friends with the NBA. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the long story short is that it's not an easy one to answer and to put in place, which doesn't mean it will never happen. Trust me, I'd love that to happen, but you know, it's it's it may happen someday, but you know, it will have to come uh, in an environment and in 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 a place where we're we're one hundred percent sure. Because like we don't we want to do it well if we do it, and I don't think we want to do something that you know will be uh will be just like a sort of a you know just like a you know a, a, a bad version of our product. Uh, yeah. so, you know, that, but, but, but you, you still know, believe that it will happen sooner or later. I hope I didn't say, I believe that it will happen. I say, I hope, uh, you know, and at this stage that, that, that's, that's what it be. But it can take different forms, you know, but there's, it, it just, you know, again, it's been 30 years. So I wouldn't like put my money on, on the fact that it will happen in the next 10 years to be, to be perfectly honest, but it's not a complete lunacy to consider it. It just have to be looked at from a realistic lens i think yeah and so moving away a little bit from the more nba topic and deep diving in your early loves uh, of digital leaving aside the broadcast media rights mm -hmm. um 
the, the linear rights, I mean. Um, what is exciting to you for the upcoming years in the dig- digital space? I think you're interesting. Uh, you're, you have a particular interest at the NFT side of things these days. Yeah, I mean, that's what everybody's talking about. I'm trying to buy my virtual cards. I've been unsuccessful so far. Uh, Are you invested in? Uh, I'm trying. In- I, I'm, 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 I'm trying. I'm trying, but it's, uh, it's tough. You know, there's a, there's a very long, uh, uh, you know, there were, the week I've tried to connect, it was not even possible to create an account. The platform was like, well, there's too many people. You have to wait. And then, you know, every time there's a, a release of a new package, um, you're going on a waiting list randomly put together. And last time I checked, you know, there were, I think, 70,000 packages and uh, there were like half a million people waiting for it. So that just gives you an idea of, of how crazy that thing is. But just to come back to the question, I mean, people that tell you that they know where the market will be in 10 years are, you know. I, yeah, two years away is hard enough. Yeah, I mean, I mean, ask, you know, I'm, I'm sure it will be fun to like compile the, 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 the view of people that have been asked this question 10 years ago, uh, because now it's all about technology that we're not even close to exist at the time. Um, and, and, you know, blockchain and NFTs is, is, you know, is, is one of them. Uh, we're at the beginning of a process uh, uh, where digital consumption are already part of people's life. And, and we've seen a, v- a few industries that have been turned upside down, I think, by it, like, you know, music and, the, uh, you know, the music industry and the movie industry are, are, are a good example. I I see us continuing to you know push the boundaries of innovation in how we broadcast our games and how we engage with our fans with the advancement of like 5G technology, uh, virtual or augmented reality that are you know topics you're very familiar with obviously. Um, we've we've also always said that 90% of the NBA fans will never step foot in an NBA arena, uh, so it's absolutely essential for us to continue to. Uh, deliver localized and engaging content um, uh, to our fan and, and, and get in a place where using this technology, uh, you know, consuming the content uh, with a great application that is offering you, as I was saying, you know, different type of commentaries, camera angles, synchronized stats, um, is basically, you know, as close as it gets to the real thing and gives you the impression that you're first thrown in the arena. Um, yeah. And I mean... There is always a topic in our industry, and they've been for five, ten years, frankly, probably at least five, maybe ten, about where the market is going. And if you're going at any of the trade show for the last five years, there are at least one panel called the OTT revolution. But the reality is that and I'm not going to those anymore, frankly, because the reality is that it's not as simple as, you know, pay TV are, is not going to die overnight and like new OTT platform will take over coming out of nowhere. I think there's a lot more nuance. Uh, and and that, like the latest NFL deal is a great example of that. Like Amazon has gotten a package, uh, but the traditional broadcaster are very much still in the game. And it's an 11-year deal. So it will be like that for 11 years at least. Uh, it's just that the traditional broadcaster are smart and they are morphing into a proposition that is obviously giving a large part to streaming technology and online services. And, you know, but, you know, NBC has Peacock and ESPN has ESPN Plus, but it's not a black or white situation. And then you need to throw in 
the direct to consumer aspect of it. That actually for the NFL part is actually completely all of it. Like they're not going to operate um, a game pass in the US uh, as part of this agreement. Um, so, so, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but I just don't believe also because if you look at the growth and the revenue uh, curve for, you know, let's say traditional linear television and OTT, obviously the OTT is growing like crazy numbers. But if you look at the actual revenue generated, it is still 90% of the money is on the, is on the paid TV side. So I don't know, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And just, no, you disagree with that? No, I, I don't disagree. I'm, I'm, I was wondering the 90-10 difference. I, I, I think it's probably reduced now. It's not It's not as big, the difference between digital and uh, broadcast. But I was wondering if you had official numbers or if it was an estimate of numbers. But I felt like it was. It was. we were closer to the 80-20 or 70-30 than the 90-10. So, 70-30, I think, is a stretch. But even if you have 70-30... Yeah. Yeah, it's still massive. And, and even if you have seven, even even if you have thirty percent that are generated by OTT, how much of that is actually generated by ESPN Plus? By you know, by, by basically yeah. traditional broadcasters that are just delivering okay. on a different platform. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you know, everybody was waiting for you know the the gaffa to like just like kill everybody in the sport market, and it just didn't happen. You know, Amazon, yes, is has a, an NFL package and it's massive. They also have a Premier League package. They also bought the, the, the French Open rights in France. But, yeah. but you know, Facebook didn't do anything. Uh, you know, YouTube didn't do much. Uh, you know, they, it's a different purpose. TikTok doesn't seem to be interested in live uh, uh, program at this stage. Everybody was waiting for Netflix to make a move and they didn't so far. So it's not black or white and it's not... It, the revolution will take time. Uh, that, yeah. that, 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 that's the, the point, I think. Yeah. And um, just to come back quickly to, to, top, to top Shot and the, and the NFT uh, 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 you know, craziness, it's just fun because I don't know if you're aware, but like collecting cards, um, you know, I've been existing since, since uh, uh, 1948. That's the, that's the way I was hooked to the NBA, actually, is collecting hmm. those cards. But so, you, funny enough, they came back in fashion in a pretty shocking way uh, in the recent year. The actual, like the physical card, um, because, you know, things like, you know, eBay or, or any other site just allowed these people to connect with each other. And it just drove the market up and the value of the traditional collecting card have been up. And Topshop, it just came in parallel to that yeah, with, with the proposition that... I would not. Sh- I would not be shocked if a lot of people are like, "Why the hell would people buy a highlight that is available for free somewhere else?" Uh, but but it, it just works, and people are, are are buying are buying it big time. And there's been hundreds of millions of dollars of 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 exchange value. Uh, is it going to last? I don't know. Uh, is it going to be replaced by a similar or different proposition? fully digital and managed by blockchain technology, maybe. Uh, but it's certainly an interesting uh, an, in- an interesting uh, field of play. And, and, and we're happy that we're, we're always trying you know, to identify what are the latest trends that, that can be translated into. It's not technology for technology. It's technology as a means to uh, find new ways to connect with fans um, yeah. and, and connect the NBA and the game of basketball with fans. 
Yeah, and I think when you look at the people who are investing pretty heavily be- behind the NFTs, whether it's the Mark Cubans of this world or the Gary Vaynerchuk, like you, you, those are pretty successful business people that are behind those big investments. So yes. uh, there's definitely something behind it. Um, last questions, last question because we're actually out of time. But having worked on every side of the scope, so on the broadcaster side of thing, on the tech provider side of thing, yeah. on the lead side of thing, which position do you prefer? Like which is the Which is the one that's the most exciting and that you're you feel the mo- most accomplished in? So um, I mean, from my personal experience, I mean it's it's hands down the league, uh, but the NBA is pretty unique, and I don't think that working at the NBA is the same that working for let's say a national football league or an Olympic sports federation in Switzerland. So I, I can only speak from my personal experience and. And for myself, I would say the toughest is definitely the tech provider, because especially in digital, and you know, technology evolves constantly, as you know, and, and most of the things you sell are not a commodity. I've not been around for for decades, so there's a lot of inherent risk to it, which is something that a lot of people, even in the industry, don't necessarily grasp. Um, And selling a live streaming service, I, I, I remember, um, I can't remember the name of the guy, but there was a guy from NBC on, on, on one panel that I've seen years ago. I will always re- remember that he said, launching a streaming service is like organizing you know, a, a landing on the moon. And, and, I, and, I, and I think it's very true because you just have to see uh, the launch uh, of new services By some really heavy weight of the competi- of the industry and the and the and the and the sports industry in the last couple of years, so let's say Formula One launching their OTT service, DAZN launching uh, yeah. their service in Italy when they acquired the Serie A rights, Eurosport launching their Eurosport player when they acquired the Bundesliga rights in Germany. The, the 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 common point between these three that they're all great company, they know what they're doing, they're yeah. solid. And guess what? They all had terrible issues when they launched. And they were absolutely trashed on social networks by fans that are expecting things to work like Netflix, except that anybody with a little experience in this business know that it's just meaningless to compare it to Netflix. It's just managing yeah. live live and live sport in particular, where basically you cannot rehearse. There's no rehearsal. You know, it's happening and then it's gone. It's a unique challenge. So I love my experience on this side of the business. I've learned a lot, but I sleep so much better today knowing that I don't have to to you know wonder. Oh, damn! Is my product that I sold to this guy going to work? Yeah. And if it's not, I know it's going to come back at me. And you know, there's not much I will be able to do except well, our tech team is working on it. Sorry. <laughs> you know. Well, that's a funny one because I bet the NBA is probably the counter example because it is the fastest moving sports organization compared to slower paced other organizations. But I would say that I, my thrill in the business is actually that excitement of knowing that OTT is hard and, you know, launching a product is hard and making sure that you can scale and develop the business is hard and keeps you awake at night, but it also keeps you very, it feels like it keeps you very alive compared to being part of a huge team where you're only a small element of it. Right. And which is, I think, We, we have a we have a very interesting um, podcast series around entrepreneurship 
that I invite everybody who's listening to, to, to listen to. And I think that that's what drives a lot of the excitement of the entrepreneurs out there launching those products, even though they're hard, because the excitement of succeeding at some point is very rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'm just too old for this. Um, what can I say? <laughs> that, we're back to that same point. You, you, you live the, the, the excitement and now you're in the comfort, you're in your comfort zone at the NBA. Yeah. You know, now I'm more, you know, just like focus on, you know, delivering our strategy in the, in the region and, you know, bringing the NBA experience to fans, creating opportunities for, you know, boys and girls to play the game and, And making the game more accessible and, and, and delivering it to to localize audience to, to localize audience here in, in the region and it's uh it's it's also very exciting to be uh, to be honest and 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 you know it's uh, I'm, yeah no, I'm I'll very very happy about sure it is. the mission yeah, it's I'm a very sure different it job it, I, and I think yeah. it's you know it's I've spent eight eight years on the other side uh, you know it's only been four years maybe if we've talked four years from now I'll have a different view but so far so good yeah. Once you'll kick the children out of the house and you're back to fully focused <coughs> on your career. Um, Bastian, it was, a, it was a thrill having you here. Thanks a lot for participating to this International Low Corner episode. Thank you so much, Sam. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for following us. As usual, very keen if you can go and like on the different platforms, talk about the podcast around you if you liked it, and see you soon for our next episode. Bye-bye. Le Corner.